G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letter U.org. I'm Jono and joining me is my very good friend and Tanakh Tours co-host, Ross Nichols. G'day, mate. Hey, Jono. How are you tonight? Doing pretty well. Thank you, my friend. Uh, we put it out to the listener, didn't we, you and I, to let us know uh, what is on their mind. Um, you the listener. We want to know. Um, what questions do you have regarding the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, for which you would like a simple, straightforward answer? And we try to do that, don't we? Try to make it simple and straightforward. <laughs> we try. We try. Um, no hints, no types, winks or shadows, just the text. Um, there's no question too controversial yet and uh, no topic too taboo, but you can certainly try us. If you have a question that you'd like us to address, please leave it in the comments section of this show on truthtoyou.org. Now, uh, the last question we addressed, Ross, was in regards to the book of Jasher. Uh, and yep. the question was was more or less, you know, why is it mentioned in the Tanakh? Uh, it, it seems mm-hmm. to be a credible source, uh, yet, it, you know, the book of Jasher is not in the canon of the Tanakh. Why is that? Uh, and you and I went a little further and, and, you know, mentioned some of the other books that are mentioned that we don't have. And uh, one of those I mentioned was the Midrash of the prophet Edo. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that then gives, um, that, that raises the question that I think you asked, Ross. At what point okay. does the Bible become the Bible? Is that is that the way you put it? Maybe so. Maybe so. Think, it sounds well, it was, like something I might say. <laughs> it was kind of profound. I liked it. Um, and so it, 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 the question becomes then, you know, the canon that we do have, why are the books that are in there in there? Because a lot of people just tend to think that the Bible just drops from the heavens and, and there it was and these right. are the, the approved books. Um, no other books shall be in them, uh, so on and mm-hmm. so forth. It's not... So you're asking, you're asking, who who let these books in, and were there discussions? Was there a were vote? there I discussions? Mean, there were. I mean, we know yeah. that um, there was some questions in regards to say the the Song of Songs, right? A little bit too right. raunchy for some, and they thought, really, we we're going to include that in the canon of our sacred scripture. Uh, another one, I think, was uh, I think there were some questions about the Book of Esther. Uh, doesn't even mention God, that book. And, Interestingly um, enough, by the way, if I can jump in on Esther, on. Uh, as far as I know, you know, I'm all into the Dead Sea Scrolls right now. As far as mm. I know, the book of Esther is the only book of the canonical books in the Hebrew Bible that's not attested among the Dead Sea Scroll discoveries, to the best of my knowledge. So out of the 900 plus scrolls and fragments that have been found, not one of them represents something taken from the Book of Esther, is what you're saying. That's that's what I understand. Very that's interesting. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah, it is interesting. Now, there are a lot of other books, by the way, quickly, that Go on. Uh, are at Qumran or were discovered at Kirbet Qumran mm. among the 11 caves that fragments and, and scrolls were discovered that are not in the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, sectarian works and so forth that are not attested in the Scripture But of those that are in the Tanakh, in the 24 books in our Tanakh, the book of Esther, uh, as far as I know, not so much as a scrap has been identified uh, that that belongs to Esther. That is interesting. Well, now that you've mentioned that, Ross, uh, let me ask you this question. The the community at Qumran, uh, and you and I have been there many times, the community at Qumran back in the day, would they have regarded these other books that are not in the canon of the Tanakh as sacred scripture? I think for the most part, uh, because most academic or most scholars would suggest that 
the formation of what we now have as the Hebrew Bible was established before the dates that most attribute to the scrolls at Qumran. In other words, most people would date the scrolls somewhere, and I'm being very general, uh, say 150 BCE and and later. In other mm-hmm. words, uh, the, the Bible as we know it had already sort of come together as the document that we now know it before that time. So they mm-hmm. would have considered the Bible that we have as the Bible. And then they had other things that they also considered, I guess, uh, very important to them, the sectarian literature and so forth, commentaries on these books. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Very good. Let me just break for one second and just say, I know that you are neck deep in the Dead Sea Scrolls at the moment. That is because you are researching further for the book that we keep mentioning and uh, that you are writing that that you and I are so exceptionally excited about, Ross. And and really, I'm just telling you and I know what it's about. (laughs) The the listeners don't even know, so we're teasing them. But we're bursting at the seams to talk about it, Ross, but we have to wait until it's published. and, uh, and, And you're not... I mean, here we are recording this program and you're taking time out to do this, but uh, yeah. that's not from, I mean, today you you, you managed to knock out a couple more uh, chapters. You are right at the end of the book. You've, you've, you're talking to the editor. Everything is going on. It's almost going to be published. We still hope that it's going to be uh, on the shelves for people to purchase by the end of the year. Is, is that fair? Can I still say that? I still hope that's the case. The only thing that might slow it, uh, see, here I am. I'm not making excuses. I'll, but, I'll tell but you I the thing that'll have... slow it is me procrastinating and calling you and saying, <laughs> do you want to procrastinate with me? Just for a few hours, Ross, let's just talk about stuff. Come on. Those are are necessary breaks, John. I get good quality time away from the manuscript when I talk with you and when I talk to my wife or the kids or grandkids. But otherwise, I'm fully engaged. And the main thing that holds this up, uh, I still have a little bit of finesse, a couple of chapters that I'm working on to finish the thing out. But then I have to go back and make sure it's very well documented because I am putting forward some very challenging material. And Mm. I know, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting it's going to be a bestseller, but I do suggest that those that read it, I want them to have uh, the case substantiated. So I need to put in very accurate footnotes and, you know, for more information, see this and that. Mm -hmm. So anyway... Uh, yes, I'm very much engaged in it. I'm excited about it. And I think it's going to be something that's going to be really fun and interesting to read. Plus, I, I think it's quite profound. Look, it is. It's it's brilliant. I'm excited about it. I've, I know I mention this all the time, dear listener, but really, this is the only thing. <laughs> we have to break to, to do these. Pro- and we love doing these programs. And we're really interested in your in your questions. So please continue to send them in. But we we literally have to tear ourselves away from what's going through our brain. Like I was up in the middle of the night. I'm, I'm lying in bed. I'm almost asleep. And then all of a sudden, a verse goes bing in my head. And I'm like, oh, what? And, and, and I have to get out of bed and I have to come out here and, and I'm out in, in my studio for an hour just researching stuff. Anyway, anyway, look, um, we'll get there eventually. And oh. that's still happening. It's very exciting. And that's all we're going to talk about once it's published. What we are talking about today uh, is a question that Piper Kelly gave us. And before I read it, because um, I wanted to do this at the beginning of the program, I'm going to do it uh, really quickly now. And that is a shout out to Dave Coles. So glad that you're still with us, Dave. 
Um, so Absolutely. Dave, Dave decided to have a heart attack in the middle of the week. Like, you know, we've got time for that, Dave. Come on. Yeah. Well, and, and just so everybody knows, he's very he's doing very well. Uh, he had a stent put in and he's at home. He called me from the house today. He's at and home said, already. Hey, like nothing uh, happened. Yeah. Yeah. Like he said, I'm walking around looking at the flowers. I can't go too crazy with it yet. But he said, I need to come up to the building and get make sure that everything is working for the audio and video. And I said, absolutely. Come on. So he's coming tomorrow. Uh, just such a blessing. We're very thankful on the heels of America's Thanksgiving uh, that Dave pulled through this and he's doing yeah. great. And I think just so you know, Sherry is a wonderful cook. Mm-hmm. And uh so I think Sherry is looking at recipes for very, very healthy type foods. Now, Dave eats healthily anyway, but I think it's almost she's going to have him on a very strict diet going forward. Yeah. All right. You well, know? that's good to hear. But that's I'm okay. Glad he's okay. So shout out to Dave. Piper Kelly's question. This is it. Are you ready? Hey, wait. No, before yep. you say that, let me let me say I am excited to see Piper Kelly's question come in. Piper is one of those few brave individuals who volunteered. She raised her hand, spent of her own money, and came to Israel in the middle of the summer. Uh, I guess it was uh, 2019, uh, maybe 18. I- I'll have was, to look. But anyway, was that for the Mount Zion she fl- No, she flew over and volunteered to help me uh, and a few other people at Biblical Tamar Park. So she's been in the desert in the summer, spending her own money. And let me tell you what I learned about Piper while we were there. Uh This is one person who spends a lot of time in the text. I mean, she reads and studies her Bibles. I do like those people. Yep. All right, go ahead. Hit me with the question. Now, this is the question that I randomly chose from the hat, didn't I, Ross? And I announced uh, last week that I was going to randomly choose it from the hat. And there's absolutely no voter fraud here to see. So the question goes, Ezekiel 40 to 48, this prophecy has not been fulfilled. Uh, I would love to hear you both discuss all about the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the prince, um, the healing waters, the tree uh, with healing leaves, the boundaries of the land uh, for the tribes, etc., knowing that sin sacrifices are prophesied really made me dig, Piper says, made me dig while I was still embedded in Christianity. This caused a major paradigm shift and played a significant role in my spiritual journey. Uh, I've heard Ross hint that this prophecy could be an either-or. So that's interesting. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have yeah. to say about that, Ross. Uh, an either-or type of prophecy and would like to hear this discussed in more detail. All right, well... Okay. Um, I, I have to admit, Piper, I've taken this in the – I'm sure Ross is going to uh, anchor us back solidly to your question. I took it in a slightly different direction. And and you're right. From a counter-missionary perspective, uh, the book of Ezekiel provides you know some fun challenges for the Christian. Uh, as you know, Ross, in chapter 18, it's also echoed in chapter – I think repeated, actually, in chapter 33, 33. – yeah, mm-hmm. states clearly that one cannot die for another person's sin. Um, mm. Seemingly expounding upon uh, Deuteronomy chapter twenty-four, verse sixteen, uh, yep. says that, and and uh, Ezekiel really um, expounds upon that. And I really love that chapter. I mean, some of some of our favorite passages are found in Ezekiel, and sure uh, that's is. certainly one of them for me. Ezekiel chapter eighteen, and but that is a difficulty for uh, the Christian. Moreover. Uh, as Piper mentions, the latter chapters talk of a time when the prince, 
uh, a messianic figure offers sin sacrifices. Um, how can that be? That's that's difficult for the Christian as far as eschatology is concerned because um, not only does the the altar, though the temple is restored and the altar goes hot and the entire sacrificial system is reestablished, um, but that's not supposed to be. Like when you read the book of Hebrews in the, in the Christian faith, there's some difficulties there. But, right. But not only, Ross, not only for the Christian uh, is there some difficulties when, <laughs> when you read through the book Uh-oh. of Ezekiel, <laughs> there's certainly some difficulties for, for the Jewish faith. And that is because when it comes to describing the sacrificial system and, and certain festivals and that sort of thing, there's some distinct uh, discrepancies, some, some contradictions, I'm going to say, between what Ezekiel okay. says and what is prescribed I think primarily in the book of Numbers, and maybe you'll outline some of those. And so the question becomes then, well, then how, if there's, if there's such a, uh, you know, if there's some questions, like if, if Ezekiel's saying something and Moses is saying another, how did it make it into the canon of the Tanakh? Right. It didn't do so easily. And uh, there was always really? some question. Well, apparently there was always some question in regards to Ezekiel um, because these uh, contradictions were, were glaring. They were obvious. You can't really hide them. And the reason yeah. I'm to understand that uh, it, it, the book of Ezekiel is included in the canon, and I'm not saying that it shouldn't be, but the reason okay, why the reason why it's, uh, it's there is due to a man by the name of Hananiah ben Hezekiah ben Garon. Uh, mm-hmm. He is the one accredited, and he he lives around the uh, around the year seventy CE, I think, um, is my understanding. So he is accredited as primarily being the one who solved uh, what at the time was the questionable canonization of the Book of Ezekiel. Uh, it is said yep. that he burned three hundred jars of oil. He wouldn't have been very popular today, I don't think. I think right. Greta would have um, protested that. I think. Um, what's his name? Leonardo DiCaprio would have been most upset, but he did. He burned <laughs> 300 jars of oil. Hey, it's interesting uh, that you're bringing up burning oil and it's almost time for uh, Hanukkah. And maybe quick. if uh, this guy wouldn't have burned up all the oil, then no, go ahead. That's a different <laughs> story. <laughs> so, 300 jars. Now, I don't know how big a jar is. If what's a measure of, of, of oil back? I have no idea, but it sounds like a lot of oil to me. Uh, but he burned them in the upper room of his house where he relentlessly studied by night the claims of contradiction in the book of Ezekiel until, Ross, until, uh, at okay. least to his satisfaction, they were harmonized with Moses. And you would be well versed in those harmonizations from his commentary, <laughs> right? Mm. I, you know, I, I haven't read that. I. I tell you, this is all interesting to me. I'm looking now at a footnote that doesn't go into near the detail that you just did in my Jewish study Bible, which, by the way, I would recommend uh, to people who want a good study Bible. The translation is the JPS, but the notes are wonderful. Very good. But I didn't know this, Jonah. Well, you you didn't know it. I'm I'm being, uh, you know, in actual fact, I don't believe there is a commentary. It would have been great if he had written down all the notes, uh, if there was a commentary that we could follow and go, right, I see how you got there. Nevertheless, the Talmud sums up the matter saying that if it were not for him, the book of Ezekiel would not have been, uh, the book of Ezekiel would have been hidden. Um, So Mm. we don't. We don't know. I don't believe we know. Maybe someone can correct me, but I don't believe we have uh, a commentary from Hananiah ben Hezekiah 
uh, that'd well, let be me, handy. Let me just throw this in. But he bent a lot of oil. Some of our listeners, yeah, for some of our. Now, let me ask you about the oil before I ask you this other one. John, does it? Do you suppose that it's suggesting that he had to burn three hundred uh, over time? Like, in other words, it's insinuating that he's up at night working. He's on this up at and night. He needs he's up at night. Okay. He's got he's okay. got a day job, okay. and uh, and he's up at night studying all night. But well, I'd like to think that he got some sleep. But he's he's like you. Okay. He's like hammering out that, um, uh, that you know the, those chapters. Yeah, we just don't have the book, and we would love to have the book. Um, but but yep. th- th- now there are some solutions, and that is to say that not everyone was happy with that. There are some like Rashi, for example, uh, does his best to sort of harmonize. Uh, Redux says, uh, "It's going to change. The Torah will change. These things are clearly that different, and what that means is." Ezekiel is a true prophet, but it's going to change when the temple is rebuilt and we're just going to have some different, right. you know, slightly different laws. There's that one. Or in the Talmud, it says in, uh, where is this? It says Shabbat in Menach 40. b according to Menach. Well, in Shabbat 13, yeah, okay. So there it talks about uh, how Rabbi Hananiah ben Hezekiah uh, okay. harmonized Ezekiel with Moses. But in Menach 45a, it talks about how, in Jewish tradition, it's, it's said that when Elijah returns before the coming of Messiah, he would solve the contradictions between his temple and Moses's tabernacle. Uh, so not everyone was convinced and not everyone had uh, access to whatever conclusions uh, Hananiah ben Hezekiah came to, but we're supposed mm-hmm. to nod our head because he burned jars of oil, it would seem. And I don't know that everyone's satisfied with that, Ross. Hey, the, you know, you bring up a perfect segue, Jono. You said that when Elijah comes, according to this tradition, he's going to straighten this out. And and if you if our listeners are familiar with a lot of the stories in rabbinic literature, there's a lot that Elijah has to do when he comes back. Ooh, what is that? Um, you know, a lot is put on you know when when he shows up now let's let's start tonight because i want to address one aspect of piper's question where she says that i hint um that this prophecy could be an either or okay so before we get into that can we go to malachi oh sure uh, let's do it in, the last in malachi, uh, few verses yep and and so first of all just so i think most people know this we don't really know that Malachi is the name of the prophet. In Hebrew, Malachi means my messenger. Mm-hmm. So it, it's different in that a lot of the prophets begin, you know, the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, the priest of Anato. You know, it's a specific person, clearly indicated. We don't get that in Malachi. We do get this idea that the message is to and through whoever Malachi is, my messenger. But it ends like this in verse. And now the Hebrew and English is numbered differently. So uh, my Bible and the Hebrew Bible, it's Malachi 3.22. And I believe in the English Bible, it's going to be Malachi 4.4. 4, chapter oh, 4, okay. You're starting there. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to just start one verse up because that's the white space. Go ahead. It says, remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, which Mm -hmm. I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, both statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Eliah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the 
children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Mm. Now, it's interesting if you consider that what we have here, and a lot of people don't read this this way, when we talk about eschatology, the study of end times things is the definition Mm -hmm. of that word, eschatos, Um, what we tend to do is, whether a person comes from a Christian or Jewish background, we have a list of things from the prophets typically that have to happen. You got to rebuild the temple. Of course, Christians believe that a false messiah, an antichrist, is going to sit in the temple and declare himself mm-hmm. God and so forth. And you know, you people build their eschatology based on their understanding of the scriptures. What I would propose based on this text, and we could do a few others if you want to, um, that that there are things that are an opportunity for a different outcome. You, you ever read a book or, or you, you, you see a story where you get to page 25 and it says, um, turn to page 50 if you choose this way. Turn oh, yeah, to choose your own adventure book, sure, yeah. Yeah, so that's, in a way, uh, God is presenting through Malachi an option. Either the hearts of the fathers and children will be restored to one another, or if that's not selected, if you if the people don't choose that path, then what's going to happen is that I will come and smite the land with a, in Hebrew it's harem. A harem is a devotion to destruction. So you get your choice. Now, the question becomes, what will that choice be? And and we get other examples, but I want to remind people, this passage begins with, remember the Torah of Moses. Now, how do I connect those two? Because the Torah of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy in particular, gives us a choice. And the choice is clearly laid out in Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. Choose you this day, and then you get your choice, blessing and so forth for those Mm, who obey, who listen, learn, guard, and do. But if you don't choose that, then you get the bad things, the consequences, the negative Mm -hmm. consequences. So I think these two go together, and it sets up throughout biblical literature, particularly in the prophets, there are things which are presented which, should they make these choices correctly, the outcome will be good. And if not, you don't get it. So we could look at others, but I'll just say this. Before we look at chapter 40 through 48, generally, these texts describe some of the things that Piper points out, a restoration, Mm. a rebuilding of the temple. Uh, In fact, this is a different temple, not Mm. only some of the things you mentioned, but the dimensions and so forth are so vastly different, certainly doesn't match anything we've seen. And so I would start with, now remember, Ezekiel 40 through 48, Ezekiel uh, basically dates that material for us, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's in a very specific time. And so one of the things that I'd like to say is that this is in roughly 573 BCE. Mm-hmm. They're in the dispersed, they're in the exile. And uh, this comes to them. Now, remember, when they return from the exiles, they rebuild a temple, do they not? Mm-hmm. But it's it's not this temple. No, it's not. And it's then definitely that not temple this. is destroyed. And, and actually, they kind of renovate the temple, don't they? They don't. Um, yeah. It, it's it's not right. a difference of uh, of foundation and dimension. 
uh, at all. So it's certainly not uh, a prophecy fulfilled. Keep going. So you would have to you'd have to wonder. Well, if if you're familiar with the word of Ezekiel and uh, the word of the Lord through Ezekiel, would you not? Would somebody not say, "Hey guys, um, we got a plan here." Hmm. Um, Let's because this is a vision that Ezekiel is given and he's told to to share it with people Mm -hmm. so that they might feel ashamed for all their sins that led to all this in the first place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you would think that that group, A, would be told about it, B, they would be receptive to it, Uh but they don't seem to know anything about it. True. and, and then, so you go, well, maybe they didn't have enough time. Well, the, that temple is destroyed, right? Um, uh, or actually, it's it's rebuilt again, and then in 70, mm. it's destroyed again. So Herod, the Hashmoneans, first of all, yep. expand on this temple. But you would think that somebody might have said, hey, we got a plan in Ezekiel 40 through 48, yeah. if you guys would like to. But they That's don't. That's a really good point. I never actually thought of that. That's a really good point. And then, and then one final point. Herod... You know, he's got all the money in the world. He can do whatever he wants. He's Herod the Great, not because he's morally sound. He's wicked as hell. Mm. But... He, he he had the means, somebody, he wants to be the king of the Jews. He wants to be accepted. I'm sure somebody should have said, hey, Herod, if I might bother you with something, we got these chapters here. Could we do it this way? Herod would have loved to do it that way, to, but he doesn't. Mm. So we've got that. That's the first thing we've got. And I find that very interesting. That is fascinating. Never thought uh, of it. Now, one other point uh, that I'd like to say is that these build on something else. Piper mentions the prince. And what a lot of people, especially I've heard a lot of people in counter missionary work talk about that this is the Messiah, right? Mm. Um, now, I don't know if if that's uh, that I would say I ascribe to that, but but that's what a lot of people will say. <clears throat> but one of the things that I want to point out is we get something else earlier that Ezekiel 40 and 40, 40 through 48 build upon when talking about the prince. So let's look at two other passages in Ezekiel that lead up to this. Go to uh, Ezekiel 34. Um and we'll do 40 through 48, but Ezekiel 34 first, mm-hmm. verse 23 and 24. All right, so it says, uh, Then I will appoint a single shepherd over them mm-hmm. to tend them. My servant David, he shall tend them. He will be a shepherd to them. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be a ruler among them. Uh, I, the Lord, have spoken. A lot of when they deal in eschatology with the coming of the Messiah, and they primarily get this, there are plenty of places they can draw it from, but Jeremiah is one place where they look at the seed of David. I will raise up a seed to David, you know, countless verses that deal with this. Mm. But Ezekiel, Ezekiel tends to be uh, very specific that the one God is raising up is David. Not, it's David, yeah. Not like not David's son. Look at Ezekiel thirty-seven. All these lead up to the discussion about the like prince. a resurrection you know, of David. Yeah, yeah, it could very well be. Um, if you look at Ezekiel thirty-seven and verse twenty-four, uh, twenty-four through twenty-seven, Jono, look at that for us. My servant David shall be king over them. Uh, There shall be one shepherd for all of them. They shall follow my rules and faithfully obey my laws. And thus they shall remain in the land which I gave to my 
servant Jacob and in which your fathers dwelt. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever with my servant David as their prince for all time. Well, there you go, as, as, as their prince. Yep. Keep going. I will make a covenant of friendship with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will place my sanctuary among them forever. My presence shall rest over them, and uh, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And when my sanctuary abides among them forever, the nations shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel. So what we have here in Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37 is a buildup. What we have is a continuity of these prophecies. And and Ezekiel 40 through 48, uh, I I guess, based on my understanding of it, it tends to, well, it's not a guess, it's what it is. It, It expands on this idea. It talks about the prince. Well, who's the prince? What's David? It's not a son of David. It's David. He's going to be the ruler over them. He's going to be the one shepherd, and God is going to place his sanctuary in their midst. Now, Ezekiel 40 through 48 give us all the details you can imagine about this sanctuary. Uh, Let let me do one more if I can. Um, Look at Jeremiah chapter 30. Because Jeremiah, as I said, typically, and I love Jeremiah, Mm. uh, Jeremiah typically is the one that we get, Isaiah's well, you know, Isaiah's got a lot of quote-unquote messianic passages, even though they're not called the Messiah. But Jeremiah 30 and verse 9 uh, is one clear reference uh, that goes Mm -hmm. along with what we're saying now. So it says, Um, instead, they shall serve the Lord their God and David the king whom I will raise up for them. Yeah. So again, uh, the implication is that David is going to be this ruler, uh, and there's no indication in the text that this is another David. Certainly it doesn't say a descendant of David. There are other Mm. texts which do suggest that there's a descendant of David, a, a righteous branch, sometimes called a Uh, uh, the righteous branch is mentioned not only in Jeremiah, but also in other prophetic passages. Uh, But this seems to be David himself, and there's one more in Hosea 3, 5. People can just look that up on their own. Mm -hmm. But, But the idea is, as I understand it, when you get to Ezekiel 40 through 48, you're expanding on this idea. It never comes to pass, but it is laid out as a potential. And that's the reason I suggest that it was either or. Now, some Mm -hmm. people still have it in their eschatology. They say, no, this is, as the rabbis concluded, it's so vastly different. These, uh, not only the festivals give us different Uh, things and so forth. Passover, for instance, Mm. uh, which we can look at some of these details. Passover looks a lot different. You know, there's a sacrifice in Passover in Ezekiel. Yeah. Where did that come from? But but they so the rabbis came to the conclusion in order to admit it into the canon that don't worry, because this implies that this is for the Messianic age. So someone who would lean that way would say, well, Ross, you're not being fair when you say that the hash, the people came back from Babylon. They didn't use this plan. The Hashmoneans didn't use the plan. 
uh, Herod didn't use a plan that said, of course not. This is reserved for the Messianic age for when Elijah comes. My understanding is that it presents things that are very difficult to fit into hmm. the eschatology that we have uh, elsewhere. We, we do get, by the way, Isaiah 56 talks about a house of prayer for all people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you do get indications that there will be another temple, if you will, but it's difficult. It's very difficult. And then uh, I don't know exactly where you want to go next, but well, I, but no, I I, something just pops into my uh, before you do that. Something just pops in my head because you talked about the differences in um, uh, Passover, Pesach, uh, in Ezekiel. Um, the uh, uh, there is a bull of purification, um, an offering there. Numbers includes no such offering. So that's a, a bull of purification. The thing that popped into my head was something that Yoel pointed out to me, and that is that uh, Yoel Halevi, by the way, of Hebrew and Israel. Yep. Um, I think it's hebrewandisrael.com. And, uh, uh, dot and net, he, dot net. Dot net. Thank you. Hebrewandisrael.net, Yoel Halevi. And uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16, where it does talk about uh, Passover sacrifice, it does say there that you shall sacrifice from uh, the Passover of the Lord your God from the flock and the herd. Uh, in the place where the Lord chooses, so it's. It is, I think this Great is the point. first, but I don't know that that is uh, uh, the 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 sacrifice of the offering of purification. That's a different thing. Uh, unique to Ezekiel, though, isn't it? Yeah, and and let me add one. That's a great point, by the way, and leave it to Yoel to find something like that because he's a brilliant biblical scholar. Um, But I would add, for instance, like in Leviticus, uh, I'm sorry, in in, uh, Ezekiel 44, 10 through 14, there are certain things that, that are said about the Levites which seem to be in contradiction to what is clearly laid out in Deuteronomy 18 verses six through eight, mm-hmm. um, and so there are there are these tensions in the text, and and look, this is why the rabbis had such difficulty with Ezekiel 40 through 48. Most people who look to this text will suggest, uh, as Piper claimed, you know, in her Christian days. Christians have have come up with uh, their eschatology. They say once Jesus died, he was a uh, fulfillment of all the types of these sacrifices. Correct. Mm. All the types and shadows so, and hints and all of that. So they would say they would say we don't need sacrifices again. Well, if you then look at Ezekiel 40 through 48 and you say this seems to be future because it, mm. it, look at right. Right in front of Ezekiel 40, let's let's look at this last section of text, beginning in verse 25. I've got it if you want me to read it. Go ahead. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now will I bring back the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be zealous for my holy name and they will be quit of their shame and of all their faithlessness in which they've been faithless to me when they dwell securely on their land with none to make them afraid, mm. when I have brought them back from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of the many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who calls them to be led into exile among the nations, but I've gathered them to their own land, have left none of them there anymore, nor will I hide my face anymore from them. I poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. Then there's a space, and then it begins. 
it it basically is suggesting that this comes 40 through 48 comes after the children of Israel have been scattered to the nations as a direct fulfillment of what was prophesied, should they choose the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Now they're brought back, and then you have sacrifices again. Mm. So the question becomes, and most people who read this say, wow, we need to rebuild the temple then. and This is their eschatology. Mm-hmm. And we need to initiate sacrifices again. I don't hold that view. Uh-huh. And I know that might shock people because people might say, well, how do you get around this then? Yeah. So I don't know if we want to go into all that, but I well, but you've, I you've, think that, you've said it now. We have to. You've got to. You've got to give us something. You can't leave us hanging there. Come I, on. I guess. I guess I have to say something. To say I mean, something. you know, Come after on. I made a statement like yeah. that. Yeah. So the question becomes: um, Does God need sacrifices? And and if He doesn't need sacrifices, um, then why would we have them? That's mm. that's one question. And people would say, well, I don't know, but it says we're going to have them, so we're going to have them, Ross, you're, you're outvoted here. But I do think that there's some interesting things that come in through the prophets, yeah. and I know some people suggest that my reading is shallow, that perhaps I'm not bringing in I all the evidence. I don't know. The first thing that pops into my head, Ross, is Hosea chapter 14. Is, is that one such... Reference that you're thinking of? That, that I think might be one. You want to go there first because you brought yes. that one in? Let's do that because um, it, it too is talking about a time when uh, there is a regathering, when the when the temple is not uh, and the altar is not hot. Um, it says, say, from verse 2, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have fallen because of your sin. Take words with you. And return to the Lord, say to him, forgive all guilt and accept what is good. Uh, and it says, and, and we will render for bulls the offering of our lips. Um, we will pay right. with our lips. And it goes on to say uh, a little further down that uh, I will heal their affliction I generously. I will take them back in love and my anger has turned away from them uh, and so on and so forth. So clearly the, uh, the offering of, and it would suggest, I, I guess, repentance, true repentance, um, will suffice, uh, and that um, animal sacrifices is not necessary, Ross. Yeah, and and if we work our way backwards through Hosea, again, you know, people can say, well, you have to read the whole chapter of this and that, but just let's pick up a couple more. If you back up to Hosea chapter 8, you brought this up to me um, earlier when we were discussing another topic. Oh. Yeah. Um, in, well, no, this is, this is the, um, the first that popped into my head last night was from Isaiah chapter 8. Uh, okay. Yeah, but, but that's, if that's about the book, don't bring it in yet. Okay. But, <laughs> I mean, don't like give them any details. Let's but, not go down any rabbit trail. At, okay. Look at uh, verse 11 and Verse 11 12. says, For Ephraim has multiplied altars for guilt. His altars have uh, redounded. There's a word. I never use that word. Redounded. What does that mean, Ross? Uh, cause, cause of. Okay. My translation said cause of sinning, but yeah. Uh, well, I've got redounded, that... redounded to his guilt. Hmm. The, the many teachings I wrote for him have been treated as something alien. Yeah. When they presented sacrifices to me, but uh, it is but flesh for them to eat. The Lord has not accepted them. Behold, He remembers their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Uh, back to Egypt with them. 
Uh, Israel has ignored mm-hmm. his maker and built temples. Judah has fortified many cities, so I will set fire to the cities, and it shall consume their fortresses. Yeah, the the Lord desires them not when it deals with sacrifices. The the Lord desires them not. Um, this this is pretty interesting to me because it reminds me of another verse we'll work towards. But go next to Hosea six six. Here we go. For I desire goodness, not sacrifice, obedience to God rather than burnt offerings. Right. Um, I want to draw out a couple of things in the Hebrew. For I desired loyal love or chesed in Hebrew because Mm -hmm. chesed I desire. So the question is, this is what God desires. And then it says velozevach and not sacrifice. So I want to underscore that what God desires is chesed, loving kindness, or true loyalty, or loyal love, some translations say, mm-hmm. and not sacrifice. Now look, go quickly to Jeremiah 9, because if that's what God doesn't desire, uh, we want to look at what he, what does he you know, really desire, and it's chesed. So look at Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, or in, right. the, uh, in the Hebrew it's going to be 22, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the strong man glory in his strength, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but only in this should one glory, in his earnest devotion to me, for I, the Lord, act with kindness, justice, and equality in the world, for in these I delight. Do you think that's equality of outcome or equality of opportunity? No, let's not go there. Yeah. Conversation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For in these, but see in these, in in faithful love, in justice and righteousness. In Hebrew, it's Hesed, Mishpat, and Sedekah. These things in the in the earth. This is what God desires. Um, and and let's let's go through a couple more. Go look at First Samuel fifteen. We just want to establish a couple of these points. First Samuel fifteen twenty two. But Samuel says, Samuel said, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obedience to the Lord's command? Surely obedience is better than sacrifice, compliance than the fat of rams, Ross. Now, a lot of people would suggest, well, yeah, I mean, one is better than the other, but the other is not, you know, it's not a crime, it's not a sin, it's not a departure. But the point is, is that consistently we're going to see verse after verse where God desires one thing. Remember, Hosea 6, 6 says he desired lozevach, not sacrifice. Look mm-hmm. at uh, the Psalms. Let's pick up a couple of Psalms. Psalm 40, uh, verse I, 6 through 8. I have to play devil's advocate for a second, though, because I know that people are saying, well, hang on, we can't just use that one and then move on, because in this particular context, um, he mm-hmm. is... He he was told to Saul was told to destroy uh, everything uh, in the uh, in the battle that he was engaged in, and he didn't. He kept some of the uh, of the cattle. Samuel says to him, "What are you doing?" Yeah. And he's like, "Ah, well, I've kept them to sacrifice. You see, it's a good thing that I do." And he, no, 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 no. You were you were commanded to uh, wipe everything out, and uh, is not obedience better than sacrifice? Um, is yeah. the context of that it is is that is that fair that I should throw that in there? It, it, it is fair. It's fair. And, and so a lot of people are saying, well, God really does want sacrifice, but he wants the heart right. I mean, that's mm. the argument. The argument is, is that I'm cherry picking, but I'm going to continue to cherry pick 
okay, and make a going. point as we work through. But sure. but to your point, absolutely the biggest argument against what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting very clearly is that God never wanted sacrifice, that it was not part of the ideal, and and that uh, ultimately there will not be sacrifice because right. it's not part of what God originally intended. And, and, and to right? your point, I raised um, uh, Hosea chapter 14, verse 2. But just going going back to, if I, if I may, uh, to the verse yeah. that you originally... In fact, let's just talk about Hosea for a second. Hosea was a, a prophet to... Who was Hosea a prophet to? To the, to the northern kingdom to of the northern Israel. Kingdom. Why then, because mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you these questions because I know that these are questions that the, uh, the listeners would be asking, and maybe you're going to sure. address this, but um, we understand that uh, when the kingdom split under Rehoboam, Solomon's son, mm-hmm. that um, uh, Jeroboam uh, set up you know, an altar in, in Bethel and in Dan, um, and offered sacrifices upon those altars with, where the golden he set up a golden calf there and uh, yep. all these sorts of things. So mm-hmm. doesn't it stand to reason that God would say to the north through his prophet, your sacrifices mean nothing to me. This is not what I asked for. I didn't ask for this because they're offering sacrifices that are not prescribed. In fact, he, he even um, uh, ordains his own priests that are not Levites. Is that a fair argument to yep. throw in into here as well? It, it's a very, it's a very common argument. It is very mm-hmm. common because what people suggest is, if if these sacrifices were in Jerusalem, say on the altar, and it was officiated by a proper priest mm-hmm. who were godly, and the person's heart was would right, then yes, that's that's mm-hmm. what they would say. That right, that's let's... the argument, and. And that the the verses which seem to suggest that there is this negative appraisal of the entire sacrificial system, some would suggest that that is only because, as you pointed out here, that the northern kingdom, nothing's right. They got the wrong priest. They're at, they're not at the right altar, and therefore it's all wrong. And that mm. is typically the argument against the view that I hold. So I, okay. I say, yes, that's very fair. Uh, and, and in fact, their context, their context, which indicate that some of these passages, for instance, Isaiah 1, very yep. strong condemnation of what's going on with the sacrificial system. But within the same chapter, there seems to be this idea that if you get your act together, then I'll accept your sacrifices. That That's uh, in the text as well. But... Mm-hmm. But I want to focus on what God did say he desired and what he says he does not desire. Lozavak, not sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Now, you might say, well, why does he allow it then? Well, I mean, there are certain texts in which certain things are allowed, but not actually what God originally intended. A good example is the king. Yes. You know, people say, well, it says you can have a king. Well, but but remember what God said. They've rejected me. So my proposal, although it might be scandalous to some, is that the sacrificial system falls into that category of things that people uh, desired, but it wasn't God's true intent. It's not the ideal. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, Again, I'll draw a lot of fire for this, but you pulled me away. I was busy writing a book. I mean, I could have. You know. <laughs> look, look at Psalm 46 through 8. Let's go to Psalm 40. Okay. 46. 
40. I'm sorry, chapter oh. 40, verse 6. Uh, uh, it might be verse 7 in the Hebrew. Yeah, verse so, 7 in the Hebrew. It says, You gave me understanding that you did not desire sacrifice and meal offerings. You do not ask for burnt offerings and sin offerings. Uh, then I said, See, I will bring a scroll recounting what befell me. To do what pleases you, my God, is my desire. Your teaching is in my inmost parts. What translation is that, by the way? I'm just curious. Well, that's, that's the uh, the JPS in the Oxford uh, Jewish Study Bible. Okay. okay. What have you got? What have you? Uh, got? Yeah. No, it, it's it's close. I mean, it's just uh, the wording. Just I wasn't sure which translation. The Koran, thou dost not desire sacrifice. Again, chafatz uh, is desire. You don't desire sacrifice or meal offering. Now, in this particular case, you say, well, I mean, do, can you say that God doesn't desire something and at the same time maintain that he really does? He just says that he doesn't, but he means he doesn't because you're wrong. Your heart's not right. He really, mm -hmm. really wants these sacrifices. But so the psalmist is suggesting otherwise, because this particular psalmist in Psalm 40, which is David, he understands that there is sacrifices uh, that can be given, and, and if you wanted them, I'd give them. Again, there are plenty of texts which suggest a different view than I'm maintaining at this point. But uh, an example, let's go to Psalm 51. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm there already. I'm way ahead of you because... Um, yeah, I, I need uh, to go there. Wait, do you want me to go from 17? Do, or? Yeah. Wait. Before you do, um, let's see, I'm going to start in chapter 50, Psalm 50. Just pick up a couple of verses I had marked. Verse mm -hmm. 9, I will take no bullock out of your house, nor he goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. Mm -hmm. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a thanksgiving uh, and pay vows to the Most High and so forth. Oh, well, that's okay. interesting. I've got, now, I've got in verse, now that was verse 14 that you just read, and, and in my translation, I've got sacrifice a thank, a thank offering to God and pay your vows to the Most High. What did you have there? Offer to God a thanksgiving and pay uh, thy vows to the Most High. It's probably pretty close. Hmm, okay. Um, and then, uh, let's see, verse 14. Uh yeah, well, in Hebrew, it's Zavak Lelohim Toda Vashalem. Yeah, it's a sacrifice to God, a thanksgiving offering, a whole offering, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Okay, now 51, and yeah, verse, um, th this is a good example of where people shoot me down with my theory, okay? okay. Being well, fair. Okay, well, I, I, I hope you've, you've got some artillery in, in response. Yeah, 17. Uh, o, Lord, o Lord, open my lips and let my mouth declare your praise. You do not want me to bring sacrifices. You do not desire burnt offerings. True sacrifice to God is a contrite spirit. God, you will not despise a contrite and crushed heart. Um, but then, of course, there's a white space, and then it continues. What does it say, Ross? O God, you will not despise. Do good in thy favor to Zion. Build thou wall, the walls of Jerusalem. Then shall you be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then shall they offer bullocks upon thy altar. So everybody says, well, Ross, you stopped too soon. 
Just what we need is for people to get their hearts right, then God will restore, and then we'll have sacrifices. Again, my point will be, as we work through a few more of these passages, that this was never the ideal, and ultimately, I think I can show that that will not be the case. Eh, it's fair. It, and uh, I'm open for questions or comments or daggers or whatever, <laughs> but I think that this just like the king, it's a good example because people, you know, we have a lot of texts which talk about this uh, righteous king who's coming. And so they go, oh, see mm -hmm. there. Again, the point is, what was God's original intent and what has he allowed? All right. Sure. So sure. look, uh, look at uh, Isaiah 66. If we can go, and there are a lot of these more than this, but I just want to pick up a few. I'm going to dig my hole pretty deep, and then I'll back up. <laughs> okay, um, 66. Isaiah verse. 66, one through four. One. Through now your four. translation is yeah. It's going to have some problems. It says, "Thus said well, the Lord, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where could you build a house for me? What place could you serve? Could serve as my abode?" Um, all this was made by my hand, and thus it all came into being, declares the Lord. Yet to such a one I look, to the poor and brokenhearted who is concerned about my, my word. As for those who slaughter oxen and slay, and slay humans, who sacrifice sheep and immolate dogs, who present as oblation the blood of swine, who offer incense and worship false gods just as as they have chosen their ways and take pleasure in their abominations, so I will choose to mock them, to bring them on them everything they dread. For I called, and none responded. I spoke, and none paid heed. Uh, they did what I deem evil and chose what I do not want. Ross. All right. Now, first of all, that translation, um, I like the notes in JPS. The translation mm -hmm. really tries to... Yeah. to uh, cover let's say let's say this politely tries to cover up some difficulties give, let, let give me it just to us straight give it to us straight russ okay he this particular passage begins koamar yehovah thus says jehovah um and then he basically is questioning uh saying that the heavens my throne the earth is my footstool what a, you're talking about building a house for me all right then when we get to the sacrificial part this is the the key in verse three, he that kills an ox, it doesn't say and slaughters a man. It says he that kills an ox is like one like. who slays a mm. man that sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck mm. that offers a meal offering like one who offers pig blood mm -hmm. and so forth. So the idea is that these people have chosen a different way. And you go, well, I mean, but hang on now. Sacrifice is done in the right spirit. This is very interesting because what he's doing is contrasting a, an external form of religion, right, R-I-T-E, versus right, R-I-G-H-T. Ah, what okay. he's suggesting is that these have chosen that in which I delighted not. Now, we already know what he doesn't delight in. Velozevak, mm. and not sacrifice. But they've chosen this. You go, well, I don't know. Now, a couple more points. Before the white space in Isaiah 66, 1, 
there, there are a few sentences, a few verses which talk about the ultimate, what it's going to be like. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. Mm-hmm. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says Jehovah. This is an idealized picture. See, some might say, well, I don't know that uh, if ever a wolf and a lamb will feed together. Why not? What if what if this is what the prophetic ideal is, is that it's more of an Edenic state in which the animals live in perfect harmony with one another mm-hmm. and there's no slaughtering that's taking place. Now, it, it's interesting because uh, where it says they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, that phrase is also in Isaiah 11, 9. In Isaiah 11, most of our listeners will know this is clearly a messianic passage. Messianic chapter and, and, yep. and in Isaiah 11, it goes into more detail but uses that same uh, phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll add one point to it. They Verse 9 of 11, <clears throat> after talking about a cow and a bear feed together and lion eat straw like an ox, Children will even play on the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child should put his hand on a viper's nest. They will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Mm -hmm. Now, the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of God, is ultimately the goal is that that what God truly wants us to know will will be from sea to shining sea. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and that which he desires uh, will be made manifest to the the world, basically. Two, two more verses, Jonah. Can we do you two know, more? Yeah, absolutely. And look, look, look at Micah. <clears throat> oh, we've been in Micah this uh, week, haven't we, you and I? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> look at Micah 6. Yeah. Uh, verse 6 through 8. Uh, with what shall I approach the Lord? Do homage to God on high? Uh, shall I approach him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Uh, would the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams? Uh, uh, with myriads of streams of oil, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for my sins? Uh, it goes on to say, he has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, only to do justice and to love goodness and to walk modestly with your God, then I will name, uh, then your name achieve wisdom. That's that's it. That So this is a very interesting. In fact, some people call this the Torah in the little. I've read that in a book somewhere one time. Can't remember who to give credit to. But it, it's basically... W- when it when you really boil it down, what does God truly ask of us? I mean, if because the writer here, Micah, is saying, look, if I need to bring uh, myriads of rivers of oil and burn offerings and sacrifices and on and on, I would do that. Now, this would be a perfect opportunity for him to say, and we know that that's really what God wants, but, you know, also be a good person, you know, because we're going to do the sacrifices too. But it seems to suggest to me that what this is suggesting strongly, what it's stating clearly, is that truly what God desires is justice, chesed, tzedakah, these kind of things like we read in, in these other passages. So, now... To be fair, to be fair, and yep. I'm picking on you a bit, mm-hmm. but it also does throw That's in the okay. concept of human sacrifice, uh, which we know is is not something that is um, 
that is commanded. And uh, I mean, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of uh, my body for my sins? No, he's told yeah, I, you, oh man, what is good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, but but most people who would pull that one out would say, see there, look, I mean, uh, well, so let me take that one away. Let me play, uh, what does Ben Shapiro say? Okay, I'll, if I take that one off the table. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's say that the human sac, we know that's wrong. So is God, is God, uh, should you go before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? And And many people would say, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Yes or no? Well, yeah. If your heart's right, this is what people would say. Well, well, uh, or I mean, uh, isn't isn't that claimed in the uh, uh, in the initial dedication of the temple by Solomon um, that thousands? Uh, I mean, an incredible number of uh, cattle and, and flocks were question. were slaughtered. Good, um, yeah, but. but Solomon also had a bunch of wives that weren't really ordained either, so let's not use him as a perfect model. <laughs> sure. But no, sure. But, but, but good, good question. But he wasn't. Well, Here's to be fair, though, he wasn't. He wasn't commanded to do so. Uh, and the claim uh-huh. itself is very difficult to believe, really, when when um, uh, when you take into consideration the amount of time it takes to slaughter just one. <laughs> um, yeah. But nevertheless, well, let me also say this. Um, you notice that Solomon did a bunch of sacrifices before uh, this dedication. Mm-hmm. Notice that First Kings eight in his dedication prayer. Mm-hmm. You know he never mentions sacrifice one time in those in the prayer. Oh, what he point. says is, when your people call out, yes. you know, when they find themselves in distress, whatever, when they turn to yeah. you and they see whatever. That's right, and that harmonizes perfect with Hosea chapter fourteen that we read a little earlier. Keep going. Yeah. So, so now, but people will say they're already going to be like throwing darts, but they're going to also say, well, Ross, you're not being fair. Isn't it commanded? I mean, these sacrifices are commanded. Well, the first answer to that is if God really does desire sacrifices, but he just wants your heart right, then it's been 2,000 years, 2,000 years, no sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Now, what people had to do when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD is they had to go back to the book and they say, well, we can't sacrifice. It's over. And the, and the answer to that is, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have a lot of texts that seem to suggest that not only, and by the way, a lot of rabbis picked up on this too. I didn't just mm-hmm. dream this up, mm. but a lot of people began to look at the text and they said, How then do we serve God? What does God truly desire? And you get this development within biblical literature, which suggests that there is a way to approach the Almighty without killing a goat or a lamb or Hmm. whatever the sacrifice calls for. Now, if that's the case, if that can be done, and if that is the ideal, then the question becomes, why the sacrifices? Hmm. Now, I'll We'll also bring up a couple of passages which which are pretty interesting. Look at Jeremiah seven. Uh, and and while we're looking that up, Ross, I'll just lend to uh, what what you said uh, a an example of this that is often used in um, counter missionary discussions is the example of Manasseh, the king, the the exceptionally evil king who's carried off to Babylon. Um, and whilst he is in uh, captivity, uh, in exile, he, it, as evil as he was, and I mean exceedingly evil, uh, the things that he did, 
prayed to God earnestly with a with, with what would appear to be a contrite, broken heart, um, and repented before God, and God did hear him and restore him away from the temple, away from uh, uh, any opportunity to sacrifice, uh, yeah. and he was um, and he was uh, forgiven and received back. Ross. Yeah, and, and that's a good point, and there are plenty of examples. Now, what, what a lot of people will say, though, is, well, okay, you, when you don't have the ability to sacrifice, when you don't have an operational temple, when there's not a priesthood that's functioning, a legitimate priesthood functioning in accordance with Torah, then you definitely, they would say, I agree with you, Ross, you can't do it now, but... When that is restored, like uh, uh, Ezekiel 40 through 48 seems to indicate the proper Zadok, uh, the descendants of Zadok will be officiating, and then everything's going to be right again. Um, That's what they would say, is that you have to do what Manasseh or other people have done, or like you and I have to do now. Mm. Uh, But ultimately, that's going to be now. But the question becomes... Again, and what I'm really trying, I'm hoping I'm being clear. It's not that I'm denying that sacrifices existed in biblical Mm. literature. Clearly they do. The question is, is that the ideal? The kingdom, if you take out the monarchy, you're left with very slim reading. You know, if you take out first, first, second Samuel, first, second Kings, first, second Chronicles, the Divrei Hayyamim, you're dealing with a lot less material. The question is, did God ever truly want a human monarchy? The answer Mm. is no, not according to the text. Does he sanction it? Does he say, yes, you can. You're going to ask to be like the nations. I suggest that sacrifices come in in a similar way. Okay. But uh, so anyway, but look at Jeremiah 7 and verse 21 through 23, I think, or 26, maybe. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat meat. For when I freed your fathers from the land of Egypt, I did not speak with them or command them concerning burnt offerings. Oh, let me read that again. For when I freed your fathers from the land of Egypt... I did not speak with them or command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifice, but this is what I commanded them. Do my bidding that I may be your God and that you may be my people. Walk only in the way that I enjoined upon them, uh, upon you, that it may go well with you. Yet they did not listen to or, or give ear. They followed their own counsel and willfulness, willfulness of their evil hearts. Uh, they have gone backward and not forward, from the day your fathers left the land of Egypt until today. And though I kept sending all my servants, the prophets, to them daily and persistently, they would not listen to me or give ear. They stiffened their neck and acted worse than their fathers, Ross. Mm, Yeah. This brings up some questions. I know people might read this and and, uh, find wiggle room. People tend to find wiggle room. This is a very powerful passage. Um, Jeremiah Jeremiah is a a prophet to to Judah um, and uh, as opposed to Hosea, right? So, and this seems pretty clear. I'm, I'm just trying to comprehend where the wiggle room is here, Ross. The wiggle room, uh, I'll give you what most people will suggest. They, they'll pick up on the phrase uh, that you read twice. You stopped and you saw it. You said, uh, 
the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Mm -hmm. And what they will typically suggest is that, of course, that single first day, um, he didn't command them concerning sacrifices, but he said, obey my voice. And so, but then thereafter, once they get into the wilderness, the elaborate system of sacrifices uh, is fully fleshed out uh, to, that's a pretty good way to put it, fleshed out. Um, but the question becomes, according to the prophets, uh, Jeremiah, he, this is pretty tough. It's, it's pretty clear that God, that wasn't part of the original plan. This is what I propose. Now, there's one other passage in the prophets, one more that, uh, really makes me think along these lines. It's in the book of Amos, uh, in Amos chapter five. And it's just a question. 21. Mm. I loathe, I spawn your festivals. Huh. I am not appeased by your solemn assemblies. If you offer me burnt offerings or your meal offerings, I will not accept them. I will pay no heed to your gifts of fatlings. Spare me the sound of your hymns and let me not hear the music of your lutes, but let justice well up like water, righteousness like an unfailing stream. Did you offer sacrifice and oblation to me those 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Huh. All right. Now, now Amos, is a, Amos is a prophet to? The north. To yeah. the north. And, and yet, uh, so we could play that card, but um, yeah. that's neither here nor there. When you read verse 25, did you offer sacrifice and oblation to me those 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel, Ross? Yeah, it's a very, uh, it, it at least causes a reader to pause if you're paying attention and you think your your initial response, being a person who studies and seeks to live your life according to Torah, and you've read these texts and you go, well, yeah, Amos, we did. But Amos's right. question is presented in such a way that it's not like he's looking for a positive answer, is the way I read it. Mm-hmm. It seems like he's saying, similarly to what Jeremiah chapter 7 said, is that eh, this comes in later. Now, interestingly enough, uh, again, this is a kind of show that most people aren't going to do because, I mean, it's a whole lot easier just to just say, yeah, they did. But, yeah, but there are tensions within the text. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, does God want a king or does he not want a king? Does he want you to build a temple or does he say he really doesn't need one and he doesn't live on earth? Mm-hmm. Uh, does he need sacrifices or does he not? Does he desire sacrifices or does he not? And the question for me became, if he truly wanted and desired sacrifices done in the right manner by people who bring these gifts with the right intent, where are they? Now, so somebody might say, well, I don't know, but if as soon as they get the temple rebuilt, I'm going to be walking my lamb up to the altar. What I'm going to do is be standing outside. Hopefully COVID lets me go back to Israel for this because I'm going to be standing outside and saying, Koamar Hashem, add your sacrifices and eat your meat, for I spoke not to your fathers concerning this. Here, here's the thing. If the temple is rebuilt, which a lot of people look forward to, there are entire organizations dedicated to rebuilding the temple so that the sacrificial system can be restored. Hmm. When these people propose that, what I want them to understand is that 
if they rebuild it and they bring thousands of rams and lambs and he goats and whatever's required by whatever sacrifice, it's not going to last. It will be destroyed again because that's not what God desired. He wants to fix the heart of man. He wants the Torah written on the heart. And I think that this is the problem is that people have focused on right historically through the ages instead of right, R-I-T-E instead of R-I-G-H-T. And that is the difficulty in my mind. That's so the problem. Coming back to Ezekiel then, Ross. Um, yeah, oh, really, right. this... we had to answer a question. <laughs> so coming back to Ezekiel, well, this is, I mean, Ezekiel is the go-to prophet um, to say, but look, but look at this, you know, the, the temple will be rebuilt, the altar will go hot again, the sacrificial system will be reinstated, and uh, even the prince will be offering sin sacrifice and so on and so forth. Is there so the question becomes is there another prophet that goes into this kind of detail and confirms that this will be the case? Because and the reason why I say not, that is because not at it, this level. Not to this level, because it has to be recognized that Ezekiel is extremely unique uh, with the amount of um uh, I mean it's the amount of visions um that that wild visions that go on. There's uh there's allegory, there's poetry, there's prophecy, there's mm-hmm. um there's all sorts of stuff in Ezekiel that we don't see in any other uh prophet mm-hmm. in the Tanakh. It's really interesting. Now this is not to say that we should oh, this shouldn't be in the Tanakh, we should write this off or anything like that, but you should know you should know the difficulties of Ezekiel so that you, dear listener, can evaluate for yourself. Um and and look what what would we be missing out on exactly, Ross, if the book of Ezekiel was not in the Tanakh? Well, I tell you, I, it has some of my favorite passages. In mm. fact, um, Piper brings up one that I really love, and it's within this section of text. Uh, and, and I hope what I'm not trying to do, I just want to make this point clear. Look, the Bible is my life. I mean, this is what I love. This is, But I've wrestled with some of these texts. And so I don't expect that everyone uh, is going to agree with me. And I I mean, people have a right to believe what they want. Hmm. Uh, just to underscore, my point is, is that I really want to focus on what God truly desires and what he's always desired and what I believe the end picture uh, will look like. But uh, back to this point about Ezekiel 40, look at, uh, is it 47, Jonah, where it talks, she mentions the trees that are there for the healing of the people. Oh, yeah. and that's one of the most beautiful pictures. Uh, chapter 47, uh, beginning in verse 6. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it says that, um, yeah, that's right. When when he measured yet another thousand, it was a stream that I could not cross for the water. It's swollen into a stream that I could not, couldn't be, I had to swim across it. And in, in verse six mm-hmm. says, uh, do you see, O mortal? He said to me, and he led me back to the bank of the stream. Uh, and as I came back, I saw trees in great profusion, there's a word, uh, on both yeah. banks of the stream. Uh, this water, he told me, runs out of the eastern region and flows into the Arva. Oh. And uh, when yeah. it comes to the sea, uh, into the sea, the sea of uh, foul waters, uh, the water will become wholesome and uh, every living creature that swarms will be able to live there. And so what it's, what it's saying is that uh, my understanding of this is that um, uh, the water will be running down into the, into the Dead Sea, which is extremely salty, 10 times over more than mm-hmm. any... Uh, salt water so that it will be able to support 
Now I wonder if this is going to be um, if it's if it's suggesting fresh water uh, like the the Kinneret, or if it's going to be uh, water like just normal seawater, and you'd be able to have that sort of marine life there, and fishermen will fish there again, and so on and so forth. And it is a beautiful image. It is a beautiful image, and and there there are trees that are along the side with fruit that's for healing of the people and so mm. forth. It's it's just this glorious image. Ezekiel has a lot of beautiful images which have come to pass in some ways. For instance, uh, if you look at Ezekiel 37, no one can deny that uh, the reestablishment of the state of Israel, I mean, some can deny it, but... You know, when you look at the fact that Jews from all over the world, people of Israel from all over the world have returned to the land, they've mm. stood upon their feet. Now, I know, mm. believe me, I'm very familiar with the view that you have the two houses of Israel, and this is only part of the picture and so forth. Uh, and, and that's really brought out in Ezekiel 37 in the parable of the two sticks. You know, you mm. need both to be there to... But nonetheless, uh, some of the most beautiful prophecies, um, mm. some of the most mysterious things. E- Ezekiel begins with the wheel within the wheel. And yeah. I- I've spent a lot of time uh, reading these passages. I don't say that uh, one should throw anything out. That is not my intent with my stand on sacrifices. But... My stand on sacrifices is that it is, if you will, an accommodation uh, that will not be part of the final plan. Now, there is a very strange passage that maybe you can help me with in Ezekiel, uh, Jono. In Ezekiel chapter 20, one of the things that's stressed is that uh, God has given uh, statutes and judgments known to them, which if a man does, he may live by them. Mm-hmm. So it's it's this idea, and you really get this in, I believe it's Leviticus 18 verses 1 through 5, where it's talking the same language, that the statutes that God gives, the judgments and statutes, the mishpatim and and the chokim uh, are to bring life, right? Which is contrary mm-hmm. to what Christianity and other people teach. But so I think three or four times in this text, it it says that if a man will do these, he will live by them. Mm-hmm. All right. And then you get, let me read from verse 23. I lifted up my hand to them also in the wilderness, declaring that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries because they'd not executed my judgments, but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were after their father's idols. Mm -hmm. So I, too, gave them statutes that were not good and judgments whereby they should not live. Now, this is God. Well, that's reminiscent. Isn't that reminiscent of uh, what we talked about? Was it it last time or or the time before? Uh, where we spoke about the, uh, for example, the story of the prophet Micaiah, uh, where we see that God sends a lying spirit into the ear of the uh, of the prophet, into the mouth of the prophets, so that they speak lies to entice Ahab to go and uh, fall in battle. You, you have to wonder if it's along the same lines, because my my first, you, everyone should read this and say, wait a minute, what do you mean God gave them statutes that were not good and judgments whereby they should not live? So then the obvious question is, 
what statutes were not good and judgments whereby they couldn't live. And then it continues. I polluted them by their gifts and that they caused to pass through the fire all that opens the womb that I might blight them, that they might know that I am Jehovah. It, it's really he. Now, this this language here, their gifts. What are their gifts? It's sacrifices passing through the womb. And you go, well, that must be talking about human sacrifices. Well, the 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 counter to that would be, did God tell them that? No. What did he tell them? This is an interesting passage, and it goes on to talk about uh, sacrifices as you work your way through. I know that this is not an orthodox stand that I'm taking here, but but my question becomes, where do we get the idea, if if we know that God doesn't desire them, if we know that ultimately they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, if Jeremiah says that God didn't command them this when he brought them out of Egypt, and Amos says that they didn't sacrifice or questions whether or not they sacrificed for 40 years in the wilderness, the question becomes, did he or did he not? Mm. And and then you say, well, if he did, Ross, it says he did, so I believe he did, then the obvious next thing to do is to wait for a rebuilding of the temple. And maybe this time, they've had a couple of opportunities, and, and it wasn't done according to chapter 40 through 48. The question is, will the next one be built in accordance with this plan, and then will sacrifices be restored or not? What do you think? Oh, look, I... <laughs> you're going you're gonna to stay out of it let them just jump on me is what you're going to do. Okay, so if, if you're going to ask me, I'm, I'm saying um, uh, just be aware, once again, be aware of how Ezekiel ended up in the Tanakh, be informed, and... And and allow yourself to um, how how would I say this? Um, give yourself permission to change your mind. Uh, you know, in regards to this, because it's not as clear cut. And there's uh, there's reasons I think why one may take a position on one side and and one on the other. Uh, but we're talking about ultimately we're talking about prophecy. Just on your point um, uh, here, it also reminds me of. Uh, when it's kind of saying, look, if, if Israel is going to uh, set themselves on a path in a direction uh, and insist upon it, uh, and that direction is bad, well, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll let you have it. Like, for example, when they were saying, oh, if only we had meat to eat, and all of a sudden they were uh, neck deep in, in right. uh, quail, or, uh, or even not Israel, we, we go to uh, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, you know, this is, this is what I think I'm going to do, and God emboldens his heart to uh, to do exactly that. Um, there seems to be like an, uh, you want that? You really want that? Well, I, I've told you what's good. You're not doing it, but you insist on this? Fine, here it is. Here's a whole lot of it, you know? So yeah. um, I, I can I can see where but you're going. Now, again, uh, and I know that uh, a lot of people don't agree with this view, but, but I would propose even further, as if I wasn't in enough trouble, um, <laughs> that there are three things that ultimately were part of, uh, call it biblical uh, religion, mm. uh, he, uh, Hebrew religion. And that would be uh, the monarchy. Mm -hmm. uh, the monarchy wasn't uh, originally intended to be the case. It was a request a from the to, people to, to be like yeah. the nation. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that one's easy. People go, mm. okay, I'll give you that. 
but again, think about all of the passages that people say, you know, look at this and there's going to be a king and so forth. And then then the next thing that I would say is that sacrifices were not part of the ideal. I'm talking ideal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and then the third one is a temple was not part of the ideal. True. David says that's easy to argue. Here I am. I'm sitting here in a nice house made of cedar yep. with, you know, nice stuff. And God's living in a tent. And God said, I never asked for a house. I'm going to build you a house, David. Those three things are, are somewhat uh, intertwined. Now, let me ask you another question. And maybe this this will wrap it up. Um, <laughs> it may drag us into another rabbit hole, but I have to ask it. I probably need to let this one wrap it up. Let's just well, say that. One of the one of the topics that has uh, uh, piqued our interests of late is the fact that during the time of David, there arose um, two high priests, two mm. priesthoods, if you like, and one of those was the Zedekite priesthood. Now, remind me, Ezekiel is a priest. Is he a Zedekite? Is this is this where we're at? Because here, he certainly does champion uh, the Zedekite priesthood, the the priests of Zadok in the line of Zadok. Um, that's another thing that is uh, heavily pointed to here in the book of Ezekiel, your thoughts. Well, I tell you, he certainly advocates uh, that the Zedekite priesthood is um, the the chosen priesthood. Uh, it appears that uh, the prophet is a Zedekite priest. Hmm. Now, there, there are various things that we would have to go into that we don't have time this evening. But the question that you referenced something that you and I have discussed, and I have on my desk, by the way, did I tell you I got this book? I ordered it. It came in from Great Britain. Oh, I, I saw that, I paid way yeah. too much money for it. Yeah, <laughs> Zadok's Heirs. It's called The Role and Development of the High Priesthood in Ancient Israel. John, I want to read this book so badly, mm-hmm. but I can't even get into it because I'm busy working on my own deal. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, it does bring up a lot of questions, but I just want the listeners to know that it's okay um, for people to have questions and for yes. people to have uh, struggles within the text. Look, the reason we have so many different divisions and religions and faiths historically and even in the present day, which are built upon the Hebrew Scriptures, is because people read certain texts a certain way. People will come to me on my view and say, well, what about this text? You know, it says that God's going to have sacrifices. And what I say is, what about my text that says he doesn't want them? You <laughs> well, see, it's, it's people, if I could just reinterpret what you just can, said, it's not, it's not just that people uh, have different perspectives. It's that people insist that others hold their perspective is really uh, the reason right. why we have so many divisions. Uh, and what we're saying is it's, it's perfectly fine. But here's some stuff you might not have known for you to evaluate so that you you know can make an informed decision. And whatever that decision is, we're fine with that. Yep. Uh, one other thing that Piper mentioned that I want to at least touch before we go is uh, she talked about the boundaries of the land. Oh, yeah. And and one of one of the things that uh, comes out in this section of text, which I love in Ezekiel forty through forty eight, is the boundaries of the land according to um, what we would say is a future point. And notice um, in chapter forty seven and verse nineteen, and chapter forty eight and verse twenty eight, a very familiar place is listed as the southern boundary or one of the southern boundary points 
to the land of Israel, and oh. that's Tamar. Tamar, biblical Tamar. Now, you and I know, and anybody hmm. who's been to Israel, that if you go to a map and you find Erovot, what you see is that you still have a couple of hours of driving to get to Eilat. Now, what does that mean? Well, it just, if people believe that this represents what Israel, the boundaries of the land of Israel will be in the future, when I, when Ezekiel 40 through 48 are fully implemented, then it looks like there's going to be another peace deal. And that southern section, south of uh, Tamar, is going to be someone else's property. Would you agree with that? That's what it seems to be saying. And and so what I'm wondering is, how far do we want to go to bring this to pass right now? Because Elot's got a lot of nice beaches. That's <laughs> Plus, there's another location that you and I like to go to that's in that region uh, that I think is one of the most important sites in all of biblical history. And so I don't want to give that to anybody. No, that's right. Um, oh, boy, we have some announcements to make on that, but we've, I don't think we can go into it right now. Uh, but it has to do with the uh, Tanakh tour, of course, the Tanakh tour that we do hold every November. We've missed it this year, of course, thanks to COVID. We will be doing it next November, dear listener, TanakhTours.com, TanakhTours.com, to join us on a tour through Israel uh, with your fine self, me, and Rabbi Tovia Singer. Uh, but we're also going to be releasing information very, very soon on a, what are we going to call This is the Moses Country add-on to the tour. Yep. And it's going to include mm -hmm. the, uh, the destination that you just alluded to. We're going to talk about that uh, as soon as it's available, dear listeners, we'll let you know. But I think we have to wrap it up. So that's your question, uh, Piper. And I know we went down a few rabbit holes, but I, I kind of feel like we needed to do that. But we thank you very much for your question. And dear listeners, if you do have any questions, we would love for you to throw it to us. And uh, in time, we hopefully, God willing, we'll, we'll uh, address them. Just leave them in the comments section of this post. Look, one, one thing that just hit me, I, I was just reminded, my first two public teachings. Uh, oh, yeah. I taught at a B'nai Noah conference in Athens, Tennessee, back in the mid-90s, 1995 or 96. Uh, I was invited to talk, and I had to come up with two topics. Dr. Tabor wanted me to talk, and uh, J. David Davis was a former Baptist minister who had oh, yeah. uh, oriented his faith towards Judaism in the uh, faith of B'nai Noah as a non-Jew. Anyway, so I had to pick two topics, and here were my two topics. You ready? Go. One was called uh, To Break a Dog's Nag, and I pulled from Isaiah 66, and I taught in 1995 or 96 that I didn't believe that God's ideal plan involved sacrifices ever. And the other class that I taught was called... Um, uh, a king like the nations, and I presented to the group assembled there, rabbis, Jews, non-Jews, all the in-betweens, uh, I presented the fact that God never desired a, a king. And you can imagine that went over very well. Uh, it didn't, actually. Uh, it was... <laughs> <laughs> so, so I know that not everyone agrees, but but let me just wrap up quickly, Jono, by saying <clears throat> that I believe that the Bible contains uh, a lot of points which are are tense with one another. 
uh, and that that ultimately we have to look deeply within these scriptures to find what God truly desired. It's a searching, as Deuteronomy says, with all your heart and all your soul. And, and I think that as we begin to do that, we begin to see that there is an ideal plan that God has and that we as humans have chosen our own way. We've departed. We've adopted certain elements that weren't part of that original plan. And I think that in the, call it the Olam Haba, or in the world to come, that we will be restored back to what it was intended to be. And I think that ideal picture is like in the Garden of Eden, where it's a peaceful existence between humans and animals, and the wolf will lie with the lamb, the lion will eat straw like an ox, and there will be no hurting in all my holy mountain. I think that's the picture. Uh, I think we've got a long way to go. There also won't be war. There won't be slavery. Remember, the Torah tells us how to treat slaves. Mm -hmm. The Torah teaches us how to conduct war and what to do with captive women. Oh, that's a good point. But, yeah. you know... Now, Isaiah says that uh, there one day there won't be war. In fact, the implements of warfare, Jono Vandor, will be converted into farming tools because there won't be war anymore. Mm -hmm. And see, what we tend to do is we look at the world that we live in now and we say, that's just so far-fetched. But so is a peaceful coexistence that's portrayed by the prophets. Yeah, the prophets could see the original intent. To your point, it wasn't that long ago when people looked at Israel and went, so far-fetched, <laughs> as if this could ever come to be a thing again. Um, you know, right. Referencing Mark Twain's quote from uh, 18... What was it? 67? So, that was a um, good year. It was a good year. It's one that we're stuck in at the moment, but we're going to get to that. All right. Thank you, <laughs> Ross Nichols, for your time. Thank you, dear listeners, for listening. And, Ross, get back to your book right now. No more free time for you, my friend. Hey, thanks, Piper, uh, for asking us that question. Hopefully, I did it justice, and uh, I don't try to make enemies, but, uh, but hopefully people will take it in the spirit that we gave it. And like Jono said, uh, it's okay to have questions. You don't have to arrive at the same conclusions that I did. Jono certainly doesn't. We debate uh, probably two or three times a week. Healthy debate is good. The rabbis championed that, mm. and we're thankful that because they did, uh, they gave us a little bit of license to respectfully engage in some of these more difficult topics. If it was easy, kids could do it. <laughs> there we go. We'll be back this time next week, dear listeners. In the meantime, have a wonderful week.